A few months ago, my uh, son had corneal eye surgery. <clears throat> and the you're all grossed out right now, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, the recovery process was fascinating. As his corneas healed, Mike went through days of progressively improved sight. Just saw a little bit better each day. Things became a little bit clearer each day. Now, I want you to hang on to that image because it's going gonna, it's gonna to come up in just a minute. We're going we're gonna to come back to eye surgery and eye healing as a major part of, of what this text is about. Speaking of which, open your Bible, if you would, to Mark chapter 8. Uh, Mark is the second book in your New Testament. What Mike experienced is very reminiscent of what we see in Mark chapter 8. So go to chapter 8, and let's read verses 1 through 9. Mark 8, 1 through 9. In those days there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He, Jesus, called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way. Some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them. Stop right there. In your notes, uh, if you're online, we're so thrilled that you're with us. Thank you for joining us. We are delighted to be one with you, and we're also really glad everything's working today. Um, if you would look on the notes page, you'll see notes. You guys here in the auditorium, open up your bulletin you got when you came in. You'll see my summary of this narrative. These verses again demonstrate the clear truth that Jesus is Messiah. He is Messiah, God with us. Emmanuel. Three amazing aspects of Messiah stand out here. First one, he teaches truth. It was prophesied throughout the Old Testament that Messiah would teach truth. And Jesus does for days. Look, look at the text. Jesus taught for three days. People came from everywhere around the Decapolis, that, that quasi-independent series of, of Greek and Jewish towns that were all around the east side of the Sea of Galilee. They came, they probably came to one of the places, and there are many there that are like this. Picture my wife took uh, these natural amphitheaters that are all through that rugged country where, where somebody can stand at the bottom of a ravine, and you, you can hear them whisper all the way up the hills and to the top and even, even beyond. Jesus is there teaching, and they are so engaged, they don't even leave for food. And here, I must confess something very sad. I sometimes forget how incredibly wonderful it is, how engaging it is to hear Scripture taught. I forget. True, I know, no one teaches like Jesus, but God has always had people in every age who are gifted at opening the Scripture and teaching truth in ways that change lives. When I was younger, I remembered this better. I would seek out the wonder of Scripture being taught. I was a single guy, and my buddies and I, we would drive, we would drive for hours to go find some great teacher who would explain really hard things from the text. But then I grew up a little and I started thinking that I knew some things, right? Uh, 
I started feeling like I had arrived. I started thinking that I understood a couple of things. And so because of that, and this is awful, this is really awful to confess, I, I began to slip into a mode where I would look at, I would look at Bible exposition as blasé, you know, been there, done that. Aren't you glad you're not like that? It was in Sweden and Uganda that I was snapped back to reality. I'd been teaching for three days with a bunch of wonderful Christians in Sweden. Early, and I mean early on the fourth day, my family got up and we went to the train station to head to our next stop, which was in Holland, only to be surprised by 20 of the Swedes who had camped out there at the station to see us and tell us goodbye, and not just to tell us goodbye, but hoping that maybe there would be time for us to study the Bible a little more before we left. A few months after that, I was in Uganda. I taught for five straight days. A hundred-plus Anglican priests came from all over northern Uganda. These guys traveled. They traveled by foot. They traveled by donkey for hours and hours. They traveled by buses. I'm not exaggerating here. That would have 45 people and a bus made for 12. And they came to study the Bible with me. When we finished five days of teaching, one old priest pulled me aside and he told me this. We have a tradition. When one enters a new village, you sample their beer. If it is good, you stay the night. We have enjoyed this sample of scripture taught. It is better than the best beer. Please stay longer so we can have more. Close quote. Now, that was after five days of studying for 10 hours a day. And I was jaundiced enough towards Scripture, this is horrible, I was jaundiced enough towards Scripture that I swear in my head, Kate Hudson's voice from the movie How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days was looking at this guy and saying, haven't you had enough? Right? Now, I'm really glad I didn't ask that because what would his answer have been? His answer would have been, no, heavens no. He would have said, no, I can, I can never get enough of God's truth. And by the way, that should be my answer as well. I can never get enough of God's Word. Three days, these people have been living on the most important nourishment in the world, God's Word. But embodied beings need physical food as well. So Jesus shows how deeply He cares. He has compassion on the trial. That's a second messianic trait. Uh, if you've been studying Mark with us, that word compassion should trigger something for you. It might ring about. This, this is really cool. Jesus' compassion is not just for the multitude. He also cares for His incredibly dumb disciples. He said compassion on purpose in the context of hungry people because he's giving his followers a chance to use their prior learning. Look up here. Look, look here. Uh, the section that just preceded what we just read, Mark chapter 6, 32 through 737, it had these elements in it. Jesus teaching for a long period of time, hungry crowds, physically hungry crowds compassion. That word is used in the text. Compassion from Jesus. The disciples being incredibly dense regarding who Jesus is. The Messiah. This is the God-man who is with us. And then finally, the fifth element is miraculous feeding using the disciples' food, right? So, when we get to this other side, the east side of the Sea of Galilee here in this later date in Mark chapter 8, what, what, what do we see? We have teaching, right, for days, three days. We have hungry crowds. We have Jesus using the word compassion. What do we know is very likely to follow next? Disciples being dense, right, and, and miraculous feeding. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. 
the Lord is giving them, look, he's giving them a chance to show they can be taught, right? That's what they could understand. So let's see. Let's see how they do this time. Go back to verse 4. Go back to verse 4. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place? Feed eight people, right? I imagine, I, I just, I picture Jesus saying verse 5 with the heaviest of sighs. <sighs> how many loaves do you have, right? Seven, they said, all right? Th these are the people that, that Jesus sent out to share the good news of Messiah's advent, that God is with us, Messiah has come. And these people that he sent, these are the ones he sent out, they don't even remember the wonders that they've just seen. Now, I shared how foolishly I forgot the awesome things that, that I have seen from the Lord and from his word. Possibly these other disciples and I are not alone. Maybe you also have gotten sleepy and a little bored with God's word. If so, this man has a message for you. This is the medieval king, Alfred the Great. Amazing war leader. Alfred was also a talented unifier as king, and he was a committed follower of Jesus. Now look in your notes. Here's what Alfred the Great says to all of us, and this is brilliant. He says, all Christians who now teach in the darkness of this world are like roosters which crow on dark nights. Now is the time for us to awake out of sleep. So let the Christ follower first shake himself into wakefulness and beat himself with the wings of his thoughts. Then let him arouse other men to diligence of good works, close quote. Jesus lets his disciples have another crack at waking up and enjoying the wonder of seeing who he really is. He is Messiah. And Jesus does what only God can. He feeds all. This is what only Messiah, only the God-man could do this. These poor, these poor folk, they had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Right? Uh, Jesus, sorry, just for you. The, it, uh, that was the Lord of the Rings reference. Just ignore it if you don't know it. All right. Um, seriously, they're hungry. And he feeds them. He gave thanks and he broke the bread. And then he kept on giving portions to his disciples to feed the people. Um, look, at, look at verse 6. There's a number of verbals in this text. But there's the second uh, gave in verse 6 is different than the rest. It's in the imperfect tense in the Greek. That, that means it's an action that keeps on going. He gave and gave and gave and gave and gave. And as always, Jesus' provision is more than enough. After all were satiated, seven basketfuls were left over. Now, that's actually a little bit understated. The Greek term that we translate large basket is, um, is ispuris. Ispuris was a woven uh, thing, kind of like a hammock, big woven piece. It was like a hammock. Um, uh, spuridas were actually used um, on the battlefield for uh, stretchers, for soldiers. So the, these, are, these are big, right? Seven of those full. Now contrast that with the, the miracle that happened on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. On the, on the other side of the sea, we had the word kofinos used. And that's, um, that's a basket. In fact, they still use that word in modern Greek. Kofinos is just a wicker basket like we have today. It's very likely that, that the seven spiritas um, were much, much more food left over than the 12 kofinoi. Um, the point is Jesus is Messiah. He provides abundantly. He is God who is with us. He, he provides hammockfuls more than we could ever need. All God's people said. Now, read the start of the next section. Go to verse 10. And he immediately, he dismissed them. He immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Damunatha. 
Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. Jesus doesn't just teach. He teaches discernment. As we say on the right side of your notes, look there, Jesus instructs about discerning truth. Um, now, we think Dalmanutha is a region, we think, this is not certain, but we think it is a region uh, near Magdala on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias would be here, Magdala here, uh, which is a much bigger town, as we're finding now, as it's being uncovered by archaeologists as we speak. Uh, Dalmanutha is this region here. Uh, when Jesus gets there on the west side of the Great Lake, he's just fed the 4,000 somewhere over here. Uh, he goes back across, and the Pharisees are waiting. They're waiting. Word reaches that he has landed, and they are there. And they are waiting. Have you ever, you ever walked into a room, and you could tell they were waiting for you? They, your radar is going off. They've been talking about you. You can just, you know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you ever had that feeling. That's feeling. Okay, so when you walk into a room like that, <clears throat> situation like, ah, uh, what's going on, right? Um, when they ask you a loaded question, whenever they ask you something that seems to be kind of pointed, what, what goes off in your head? You immediately think, it's a trap, right? That's what you think, because <laughs> that's what it is. That is what Jesus experiences here. But instead of giving into their trap, look at his reply. He says, he says, Jesus' own presentation, my presentation beats any sign. Not that long ago, on this very shore, he already fed 5,000 people. He proved himself right here to be the God-man Messiah. They only want another sign so they can control him. That's it. I mean, think about it. The one who demands the sign, if he gets it, then he's actually the one in charge. It's like... Um, it's like a wife and husband. Uh, years ago, back when I used to, to counsel, uh, I had a wife and husband wanted to come meet. They were having struggles, precious couple. And so we had tea and we met together. And in the course of the conversation, the wife said this. She said, I keep demanding that he spiritually lead this family, but he won't do it. Now, what's wrong with that sentence? When I explained to her, <clears throat> as I looked at the husband's pained face, when I explained to her that her demand, no matter what he does, it actually makes her the one in charge who is actually leading, to her credit, she got it. She, the light bulb went off, and they, they each began to change and have done very, very beautifully ever since. Thinly veiled attempts to control God. That's what demanded signs are. And, and by the way, demanded signs are also v big cop-outs. They, they, they're faithless. When you demand a sign from God, it's almost always paganism wrapped up in a thin veneer of biblicity. Jesus is very, very compassionate here, very compassionate. He just groans inside. You know what he could have done? He could have given in and given them a sign. And if he had, it would have only added to their eventual judgment because these people had already decided that they were going to reject Jesus regardless. Then Jesus extends that kindness to his followers. Look at verses 14 and 15. In 14 and 15, Jesus, he grabs a teachable moment with his followers. Okay, they got into the boat, they went to the other side, right? The disciples had forgotten to take bread and only had one loaf with them in the boat. <clears throat> they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Let me explain. The Herodians are a party, uh, a fairly powerful party in Israel at the time, 
who, who have this, this government affection that leavens politics through every single thing they do. These people see life only through the lens of political power. The Herodians are all about political power. Now, the problem's not politics per se, any more than leaven is bad. You do know in the Bible, yeast is not always bad. It's used sometimes as a positive illustration. It just means something that shoots all through. You, you put a little yeast in, there's a lot of yeast. It goes through everything when something's being baked. Like yeast, politics can be good. There are a number of heroes in the Bible who are deeply involved in government. The problem Jesus addresses is finding your salvation or your mission in politics. The Herodians see only in terms of this earth and its political structures. I was in Washington, D.C. one day, and I was talking about churches with a, a very famous Republican Christian. This Republican, um, and I got to talking, and I challenged him about, well, now, wait a minute, where do you go to church? Where do you, where do you submit to the, the benefits of the body and, and all that goes with being a member of a church? And he pointed up at the U.S. Capitol. He pointed up to the dome, and he said, I don't go to any church. This right here, this is my church. That's Herodian. That's absolutely tragic leaven. And that, frankly, many, many Americans are that way. That runs through and ruins the things that are produced by those followers of Christ. Now, Pharisees are different. They're a little different. Their leaven is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness runs through everything Pharisees do. Simply put, Pharisees view salvation in terms of works. One becomes right, one becomes justified with God in Pharisaical mind based on what one does. Uh, what one says or does is, is what matters. Um, now, don't misunderstand. The Pharisees actually talk about grace. They do. We have a number of writings from Pharisees. and they, here, they, What they did was they said, they said grace is necessary. You've got to trust God. But, 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 listen carefully, God's grace is never enough. It's not enough. You see, they, they, they took the limited Mosaic covenant and they bastardized that by combining it with the unlimited Abrahamic covenant and they made an unholy mess that de facto says that human effort is required for a person to be justified before God. Again, many Americans today struggle with Pharisaism. It's especially found in some Democrats today. Liberals demand that everybody else clear their cultural bar of wokeness or they need to be canceled as a threat to the public. That's Pharisaism. That is exactly what that is. It is a dangerous yeast and it will ruin a Christ follower. Jesus' point is truth is not found in human constructs, not, not government, certainly not in self-righteousness. Those are flawed guides to the truth. Once again, let me take you back to somebody who understood this text. This is somebody who caught Jesus' warning. Alfred the Great, the very last book that he ever wrote. King Alfred the Great was discussing. He was discussing government, and he was discussing self-righteousness. Makes sense. He's a king. And he penned this paragraph. I liked it so much I put it in your notes. He said, It is needful that thou look straight with the eyes of thy spirit to God, as straight as a cable stretches taut from a ship to her anchor. Even though the ship tosses at sea in the waves, she is safe and unbroken, close quote. Alfred grasped what the disciples at this point do not, that God alone is truth, and Jesus is Messiah. He is God the Son. L listen to this king, this king who knows that government is never primary, this king who knows that self-righteousness is going to leave you shipwrecked. When anything but the Lord takes precedence in your life, 
That will ruin your entire effort. Now, I want to read the next section, and I want to point something out as we read it. I am not trying to pick on these young followers of Jesus, okay? It's just they are so dense. They are dense to the point of tragic comedy. Let, let, let me show you. Read, read verse 16. Go to verse 16. They were discussing among themselves. They did not have any bread. Just stop there for a second. Yeah. Ha! Okay. They've just said, they're in the boat, hey, we only got one loaf of bread. And Jesus says, teachable moment, right? Beware the leaven of the Herodians and of the Pharisees, right? Really cool. What's your response supposed to be? If you're one of these young people in the boat, you're supposed to say, okay, tell us more. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, explain to me. What does it mean to have an anchor for the soul that is not the things this way? That's what you're supposed to do, right? Jesus gives them this great, beware the leaven of everything. What's their response? Huh. You know, we don't have any bread. That's amazing. I know you kids have never done this, but on occasion, parents will say things that are really brilliant, and the kids just go, huh, and just go back to whatever they were talking about. It's just, it's maddening. And it's, it's why children are killed all the time. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. All right. Okay, but this is really frustrating. All right. They were discussing among themselves. They did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand and comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? That's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 5. Do you have ears and not hear? That's a quote from Ezekiel 12. Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. They know that. They got that one down. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And yet, he said to them, don't you understand? And I'm sure he said it exactly, like banging his head. They're worried about food. Jesus quotes Jeremiah 5, Ezekiel 12. These are passages these guys surely memorized as boys in their synagogue school. He takes them back through the scripture. He takes them back through the two miracles of feeding. And he says, now do you see? See, crickets. They're just crickets, right? They are so focused on what they don't have, bread, that they miss what they do have. They have Messiah. They have Emmanuel, God with them. Thank goodness we're not like that. So focused on what we don't have that we don't even see every moment of every day the Messiah who is with us. Let me show you a little video clip. Just watch carefully. Watch carefully. Okay, now the character, I, I hope you don't know that because only my friend Cliff Donathan is horrible enough to have watched that show, but the, um, the old TV show Arrested Development is, uh, is really got a lot of funny parts to it. I do not recommend it, but this character in the show is a huge fan of the comic strip Peanuts, all right? And in the clip I just showed you, he is so sad about what he doesn't have. In this case, it's a girlfriend. He doesn't have a girlfriend. And so the director, this is really pretty brilliantly done, has him walk like Charlie Brown, right? The head down the Charlie Brown walk. And he's walking along so concerned with what he doesn't have that he misses the dream of his life. The dream of his life. A real life Snoopy Beagle on top of a Red Baron uh, sopped with camel dog. I mean, it's just awesome. And he never sees it. It's even got the Charlie Brown music playing in the background. You notice that? Hey, here, watch it again. Watch it again. Take, take a look and listen. Doesn't even see 
what's right there in front of him. That is us. That is us. That's what the disciples are like. We followers of Jesus so easily get lost in what we lack that we miss what we have. What we have is Jesus in the boat with us. We have Messiah with us every moment of every day if you're a believer in Christ. And we don't, we don't even see it. Now, all that, everything we just talked about was leading up to this. Jesus illustrates the progress of finally seeing truth. Here's the progress of seeing truth. Go to verse 22. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. Uh, Bethsaida is a town that had already rejected Jesus. Very ugly, ugly scene. Uh, they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He, Jesus, took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking, right? Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village, meaning of Bethsaida. Paul DeLiesel uh, writes and plays in a band called Smash Mouth. Uh, their most famous song is, hey now, you're an all-star. Yeah, that'll be in your head all day. Um, Paul and a former member of the band, Gregory Camp, they wrote a, they wrote a poem one time, a lyric that I, th I think really illustrates the feeling that blind man had to have outside of Bethsaida. Um, here's what there's, the name of the song is, I just want to see. Sleeping on the sidewalk, the home they call. Doctors and lawyers race for the ball, and I don't even want to understand it all. I just want to see. I just want to see. Again, Jesus has compassion. He heals this man who wants to see. And yet the manner is strange. Tell me, come on, somebody tell me, what, what's odd about this healing? What's strange about it? Yeah, it didn't, it, it didn't seem to work. It's only partial, right? Why is, is, is the Messiah not powerful enough? I mean, is it, maybe Jesus didn't try hard enough the first time. You know, he, he didn't do it in the right way. Let's think like pagans here. Maybe the formula wasn't right and he didn't do things exactly right. Is that, does that make sense to you? Please say no. Please say no. Please. No, that's nonsense. He just fed 4,000 people with a few little loaves of bread and some fish. He can heal anything. He's the God-man. He's Messiah. So why does he do it in parts? It's an illustration. It's a picture. If you chart it all out, it becomes a whole lot clearer. Look at this. Beginning of chapter 8, what did we just talk through? The disciples don't see clearly. They see some, but they don't really see clearly regarding the fact that this is Messiah. This is Emmanuel. They, even with the miracles, they don't see clearly. So then we get to this miracle. What happens in the first half of the miracle? The guy doesn't see clearly. It's ants, I think, the trees walking around, right? He doesn't really understand. But then... Jesus purposely setting it up this way so we will see the flow and we'll catch the cool picture here. Je Jesus has the man look, and he looks intently, and what happens that time? He sees how? Clearly. So what's going to happen next? You can tell. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen? Somebody tell me. Disciples are going to finally see clearly. It's really, really cool. Now, before we get to that, before we get to that, I want to ask Dr. Renee Campbell to come up, if you would. Uh, Renee, come on up here. Um, Renee Campbell is an eye doctor, and uh, she very kindly, even though she absolutely hates doing this, she very kindly agreed to come up and spend a few minutes with me. Um, <clears throat> Renee, thanks for being here. 
And I have your mic for you this time. Very good. Um, this passage is it's all, about, it's all about seeing. It's all about seeing and understanding Jesus. And so when I was first working through it months ago, I, I thought of you. R- Renee and uh, her, her partner, Stacy Turner, have been my eye doctors for a long, long time. And, um, <clears throat> and, I, and so I thought about you because I remembered something you told me years ago. Tell everybody, what was your deepest desire from the time you were a little girl? So, yes, it's true. I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be an optometrist. I remember um, sitting in our family optometrist chair, and he started turning all kinds of cool knobs and dials, and gradually I started seeing clearer and clearer when I didn't even know I was blurry. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Um, And so I told him when I left that I was, when I grew up, I was going to do what he did and help people see better. And you do. Uh, The... um the, the big idea, did you notice how she said, didn't even know that I was blurry, and I began to see clearer and clearer? That, 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 that's the big issue here in this passage. Disciples don't know their dance. Thank goodness we're not like that, right? Yeah, that's, that's the big deal. Okay, so, so let's talk about your life a little bit, because we've talked about this before, too. Uh, what was your journey like, coming to, to see and then understand and then respond to Jesus? Tell us a little bit of your story. So I I did grow up in church, and I knew the gospel. I heard it every week, and I I understood it. It just wasn't real to me. And um, so when I was 16, I went to Brazil as an exchange student for a year. And the first month I was there, I was totally miserable. I was lonely. I was homesick. My Portuguese sounded a lot more like Spanish, so nobody spoke to me. Um, And all I had with me was a Living Way Bible um, that my sister had snuck in my suitcase. So... I would sit by the river that ran through town every day for two weeks and read my Bible, uh, probably for the first time, really. And I, my eyes were open. God finally showed me who he is, and I began to see that Jesus did want a relationship with me. And so I knelt by that river and prayed and that's, trusted Christ. That's awesome. Jesus wanted a relationship with me. He is Messiah. That, that's, that's a very loaded word. As we look through all of Scripture, it means he is God and man. And it means he's Savior. He wants to save. He wants to rescue. He wants a relationship. So, so what would you say? There, wonderfully, there are people all over the world that study with us. That made you even more nervous. Sorry. Um, what would you say to somebody who is, they're trying, they're, they're thinking, they're considering this Jesus, who he is. What, what would you say to somebody who's beginning to see some of the Messiah? What would you tell them? I would simply say, if you feel like God is opening your eyes to see him as he truly is, um, then know that he does want a relationship with you, and today is a day to trust him. Amen. Well said. Can you guys give Dr. Campbell a hand, please? Thank you. Thank you, Renee, so much. Wonderful. Amen. He does want a relationship with you. Now, let's complete our text. Peter, Peter here is going to speak, and he's going to share the ultimate expression of truth. This is, the, this is the climax of the passage. Go to verse 27. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So we went northwest from Bethsaida. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Some eyes here are at last seeing clearly. 
Peter understands finally Messiah has truly come. This teacher isn't just another prophet or just another teacher. He is demonstrably not anyone else. He is the Messiah, the promised Savior. They understand the advent now. They, they understand finally that Jesus is God come with us, that he is Emmanuel. By the way, speaking of that advent, in in spirit of that, I'm going to light our first Advent candle for this year. I never get to do this, so this is really fun. This is our first Advent candle for the year, and this year we are calling it the Candle of Sight. This seems appropriate, doesn't it? As we prepare for Jesus' coming and His coming again, we light the Candle of Sight. Now, I always get this question. Why did Jesus tell people to stay quiet? I mean, the blind beggar was told not even to re-enter Bethsaida, that town that Jesus had been rejected from. And now the disciples, who are finally understanding, are here in this busy pagan center. By the way, the region of Caesarea Philippi was dominated by a temple to Pan. Pan was one of the more rowdy gods, and, uh, and this was a very bawdy center of uh, licentious worship. And so it's in that area that they finally get who Jesus is, and they're told to be quiet. Why? Let me share with you a note. I, I scribbled this in the margin of my Bible when I was studying this, and uh, this, this may be useful to you. Jesus is on a timetable of self-revelation to guide all to truth. That includes the development of his disciples. He forbids signs and broadcasting both to save judgment for Israel and to demonstrate the inappropriate response he's received from towns like Nazareth, earlier in Mark, Caesarea Philippi, and Bethsaida. Jesus is himself the ultimate expression of truth. Now, at other times, he will commission people to go and tell that on the mountain. He, he's already sent these disciples out once. He will do so again. But right now, he's protecting a blind people that don't want to see. He's lowering their responsibility and their judgment should they keep rejecting him. He wants to give all people time to see the way Peter finally does. Now, how about you? What are you seeing? Are you, are you blind toward Jesus? He's just, he's just a myth. Can you only see dimly? I, th I think he might be a good teacher. He could be the highly regarded prophet. Or do you look intently and understand that Jesus is truly who he claimed to be? He is the Messiah. Or are you like I confessed of myself? You know that. You know the living Word of God. You know the power of His words, the Word of God. And yet, you get so consumed that you don't even remember that He's in the boat with you every day. Jesus is the Messiah, folks. He is the one sent to save mankind. He's going to suffer and die for sin, paying the transgression price for everyone who trusts him. He's going to raise from the dead so that the, God's grace alone will truly justify believers in Jesus. What do you see? In the 6th century, the Irishman uh, Columba was in Scotland. He was sharing scripture very broadly, he ended up in a conversation with the Picti king, Brude I. Now, according to a really delightful book, The Annals of Ulster, uh, Brude asked Columba, If I believe your message and become Christ's man, what shall I see? And Columba said, You shall stumble upon wonder, upon wonder, and every wonder true. What do you want to see? Pray with me. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and for myself 
lot, a lot of people um, in our wonderful group who who have seen, have understood that Jesus is the Peter's great confession, the climax of our passage, you are Messiah, and yet we don't live like it. We walk by with Charlie Brown walk with our head down, not even noticing that someone even better than Snoopy is with us. Lord, I beg you to change that. We are so sorry. It's ridiculous. Help us wake up and see better each day. Help us to look to the Lord alone as our anchor for the soul. Help help me, help us grab your words as a daily progress of sight in wonder upon wonder and every wonder true. And Lord, I um, I pray for anybody who's studying with me that has never trusted in Jesus. As as Dr. Campbell said, I pray you open their eyes right now. Friend, Jesus loves you so much that he, Messiah, took your judgment on himself. He's the only one who could pay the price for your separation from God because of your sin. And after he died on that cross to pay the price, he rose from the grave so that if you trust him, you get to follow him in everlasting life. If you've never done so, trust Jesus right now. In the beautiful privacy of your own boat with Jesus in it with you, take the teachable moment and receive Jesus. Trust him. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand, please. Raise your hand. Good for you. Good. Thank you. Father, I pray for all these believers, new and old, that we will that we will see and we will continually remember to open our eyes to the Messiah. Amen.